We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. Ice here roundup with the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Menconi of Ice here News. Joining me in studio today, amidst the typhoon, amidst the winds and the rains, uh, is Gavin Phipps, also of Ice here News. Hey, good evening. And by phone, safe at home, safe and sound, and we're glad that she is. Uh, staying out of the rain, we've got Jane Rickards. Uh, she's a Taiwan-based journalist and former president of the Taiwan Foreign Correspondents Club. Uh, Jane, g- glad to have you back on the show. Yes, good evening, Keith. And good evening, Gavin. Good evening. <laughs> We're so congenial today. On the show today, uh, once again, we are beset with an overabundance of news to cover. Uh, of course, uh, there was the Navy's missile accident. Uh, it was almost a week ago, but still a lot of questions remain. So uh, we will get Jane's take on that. Uh, in the second half, we'll be getting a snapshot of the economy from Bloomberg's Deborah Mao uh, following the central bank's decision to drop interest rates again. Uh, repeated interest rate drops, never a good sign for the economy. And we'll be rounding things out with an in-depth look at new legislation passed this week aimed at bringing under control Taiwan's shark-finningist, catch-loading-not-reportingist long-distance fishing industry. But first, uh, we've got two very serious developing news stories to cover. Uh, developing news stories are, of course, the sort of news stories that we are least equipped to cover, being a weekly uh, news show, but we're going to do our best. Uh, and we'll start with the typhoon uh, that is, of course, uh, hitting the south and center of Taiwan uh, pretty hard. Quick little disclaimer uh, before we start getting into this one. Uh, we generally uh, record these shows in the mid to late morning sort of time, so we're not going to be saying anything too specific because, of course, typhoons being the uh, shifty things that they are uh, will have changed by the time that this broadcasts. So we're just going to be talking about things in the absolute most general of terms. Uh, but Gavin, Napartic is uh, the typhoon in question right here. This has been a very tricky typhoon because uh, every time we thought we had a handle on it, we thought it was going to just go north, miss Taiwan entirely. Then we thought it was going to kind of hit northern Taiwan pretty hard. Uh, now it looks like it's missing northern Taiwan entirely. Well, it is. It's, it, in fact, it's one of those typhoons that the bookmakers would balk at, basically, if you could put bets on where it was going to make landfall. I'm sure somebody's found a way to I'm bet sure on that. someone's made a lot of money on it, because, of course, on Monday of this week, when we first noticed the storm out there, everyone was going, ooh, it's going to hit the north. Ooh, it's going to land in Elan and batter Taipei. Then gradually through the week, we realised in Taipei that it was moving south. Now, this morning at 5.50am, it actually made landfall in Taidong County's Taimali Town. Township. Mm. Yes, so there you go. That's when it made landfall. And at the moment, as we're recording this, it's still inching its way across the island in the Kaohsiung area. All right. Mm. So that's uh, basically what all of that looks like. Um, I would imagine, I would imagine that the cabinet is breathing just a little bit of a sigh of relief because they put it on the line this week saying, uh, hey, you know, all those problems we've been having at Taoyuan Airport, all that flooding, not going to happen this time. Well, uh, we don't even need to put it to the test. A famous last word. Like, <laughs> you just jinx the whole place. Really. I guess I we, did. I probably did. By the time this broadcast, oh, we man. could have all be sunk, basically, by the time this gets broadcast now. No, but it was quite interesting because they did predict heavy rains for the north. And, well, as we've seen so far, as we're recording this show, we haven't really seen much rain in the north so far. Touch wood, we won't see any. Mm-hmm. But I did get a message from a friend of mine in Kaohsiung this morning 
who basically phrased his message, what the hell is going on, how long is this going to last? So mm. it's a bit windy down mm. there. And, of course, I believe, as Jane said, the, the winds in Taidong, of course, were yeah, the, one of some of the strongest on record. Going to local media broke records. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're not even the whole way through the day, so... No, but the, the government is prepared, because apparently there was something like 34,000 servicemen and women on standby to head off any possible sort of disasters, and the military had 34,000 servicemen and women on standby to provide relief and rescue assistance if needed. They had thousands of vehicles at their disposal and also boats. Mm. And apparently the Marine Corps personnel were deployed to potential hotspots in Taoyuan and Ilan, obviously to evacuate people should they need to be evacuated. Alrighty, so uh, mm. we're just going to have to leave it there because uh, the but more it, we say, the more we're going to be wrong. But it was named after a Micronesian warrior. Oh, we figured that go. out. There we go. got that tracked down. This is a typhoon not to mess with because <laughs> I wouldn't be messing with a Micronesian warrior. Really. Uh, good call. Good advice. Uh, probably the best advice we've given so far today. Uh, all right, now we're going to do some more reporting that will likely be out of date by the time this all airs. There was an explosion on board a commuter train last evening, injuring more than 20 people. This explosion now is looking very much like uh, an attack. Well, there is comments from the Premier here in today's media saying a cross-agency team is now investigating what the Premier described as an attempted attack. Mm-hmm. But they're being very, you know, they're not saying what it was. They're being, Obviously, they have to, this is the sensible thing to do. Nobody knows what it was. They're still investigating it. But police and eyewitnesses say that a man dressed in black in his mid-40s got onto the train at Sungshan Station in Taipei, left a black backpack somewhere on the train, walked mm. off the train, and shortly thereafter, after this package or bag exploded. Now, there is also some controversy, or no, some controversy, some questions still when we're recording this show as to what the explosive device was. There's been quotes that it was a firecracker, but then Mm. apparently police have said that forensics teams have found, like, steel piping, which makes it sound like a pipe bomb. Mm. But, of course, we still don't know. Now, 25 people were injured, 21 were hospitalised for emergency treatment at several hospitals across Taipei, and reports said that at least one person suffered burns to over 30% of their body. Mm. All right, so a very grim bit of news right there. I'm sure we'll be uh, learning more throughout the day. Uh, But once again, I I, I think we're just going to have to leave our reporting right there because, uh, well, uh, by the time folks are listening to this, they'll probably know more than we do. Okay, so we are going to go now from stories that uh, are far too new for us to cover uh, to one that's already pretty old. Uh, The case of the misfired missile... Uh, is growing moss at this point, as one news editor I worked with in San Francisco would say. In fact, we were actually taping the show uh, last week when the news kind of broke. So this this one is as old as it could possibly be. If it happened any earlier, we would have covered it last week. Uh, but while we are a bit behind the curve on this one, uh, a lot of questions remain as to how it happened, uh, how it's going to affect cross-strait relations, Uh, and uh, what the government's response is going to be. So still quite a bit to sort out. We're going to get to that in just a second, but uh, really just to catch anybody up who, uh, for whatever reason, hasn't been paying attention in the last week, Gavin, basically uh, a missile was uh, misfired. 
Yes, a Xiongfeng 3 anti-ship missile was misfired during a simulated drill at Kaohsiung's Zhuoying naval base last Friday morning. The missile flew some 40 nautical miles and hit a fishing boat, a Taiwan-registered fishing boat, killing the captain and injuring two crew members. Now, when it happened, of course, there was all this controversy, people screaming, it was a conspiracy, it was fired intentionally to stoke cross-strait tensions. Hmm. Well, that's all now been dismissed because the Kaohsiung District Prosecutor's Office said this week that its investigation into the launch of the missile found no evidence that it was fired intentionally. Mm-hmm. Now, the prosecutors down there say that they've basically interviewed and investigated the petty officer who's his name was Gao Jia Chun. He was in charge of the missile system at the time, and his supervisor, Chen Ming Shou. And they found that neither of them deliberately fired the missile, and basically they're still running... To the, they said they collected samples from the two men for drug testing, they searched their homes, they searched their mobile devices, no doubt their computers as well, and they said they have found nothing untoward and nothing that points to a conspiracy. Mm. Now, the Defence Ministry this week said that Gao, he was the petty officer in charge of the missile, system was performing the tests without any supervision at the time and he mistakenly launched the missile. Apparently he selected the wrong mode for the missile drill simulation, setting it on combat mode mm. instead of training mode. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, and tragically, of course, that missile uh, impacted a fishing boat. The number of injuries on that fishing boat, the skipper of the boat, uh, was killed in the impact. Uh, and uh, there's been a little bit of drama this week as the defense ministry has been trying to, you know, show apologies to the family of uh, the individual that was killed. Uh, and, uh, well, there's been kind of demands back and forth. There was an incident in which uh, Navy officers were kneeling in front of uh, that man's family uh, and, uh, you know, just to show an act of contrition, more or less. But uh, some in the Navy are saying that that was inappropriate. So just how contritious these Navy officers should be has been a big question, uh, as has morale, how this uh, and other recent military scandals uh, have affected national military morale. Jane, what do you see as the most important fallout from all this? Okay, um, well, first I would note that accidents do happen. I would say that in response to the conspiracy theories. For example, in 1994, a U.S. Navy ship fired two missiles during a simulation exercise which hit a Turkish warship and killed several. Mm. Um, I think the main fallout, my take on this, is that I think um, Tsai Ing-wen has already given herself quite a difficult task because um, she's a woman and um, she also belongs to the DPP. And while many junior commanding officers are politically neutral or even DPP voters, you've still got the factor that a lot of senior people in the military or um, officers are, uh, tend to vote KMT. And um, Tsai Ing-wen is doing very much, has been doing very much to restore the dignity and morale of the um, defence forces. Like, she's been visiting various basis um, and she's been saying you know your your honor is my honor your disgrace is my disgrace so she's she's commander in chief of Taiwan's armed forces and she's been trying to restore their dignity and then economically um, you know um, Taiwan's military is very important as part of her plans to revive the country's economy um, national you know building up a sort of national defense industry is very important and hence she appointed the defense minister Feng Shuquan um, as her defense, he, she, he was appointed because he used to head the sort of state-run aerospace company. 
that's all to do with her plans to build up um, Taiwan's defence industry. Now, she's started her rule. She's been sort of less than two months in office, I think, and she's already sort of having to chew the military out for, quite rightly so, for, you know, being undisciplined and being lax and letting this incident happen. So this isn't sort of politically, this isn't sort of the best way to sort of to start, you know, because she... she she needs to sort of form a relationship with them and she wants the public to respect the military and, 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 and you know, being a soldier should be an honourable thing under Tsai's plans. Mm. And already there's, you know, it's not starting out on a good note. Right, exactly. That's- and we, we also saw some poll that the public, uh, perhaps yes. uh, public perceptions and public approval ratings were yes. affected negatively by this as well. Yes, yes. But on the other hand, you could see this as a positive. Well, not really as a positive because it's not a good start, but... Um, it's the the bright side is that um, it's more there'd be more um, push for reform mm. and um, more of the public are probably going to support size efforts to reform the military and um, the important it also sort of highlights the importance of the military and the importance to keep discipline and things like that. So from that perspective, it's a positive. Um, one other political factor I thought which might have contributed to the um, incident is actually Taiwan's military isolation. Um, I, Gavin, I don't know whether you have any thoughts about that, but um, after the 1996 missile crisis, um, sort of the Americans have thought that Taiwan had one of the most isolated militaries in the world, and that's because of its diplomatic isolation. And I spoke recently with a retired defence officer, and he sort of said that the fact that Taiwan can't openly participate in war games with allies like the US means that um, it can't sort of learn from how other nations conduct exercises and the procedures they go through and so um, it's sort of a sense of a bubble and um, I think that that is a factor. Yes, of course, it's not the first errant missile we've had yes. here. We've had errant missiles land on villages in Pingdong County yes. before. We also yes. had an errant mortar shell technically land quite close to President Chen Shui-bian at a military drill many years ago. Yes, yes, well, that's what I mean. There's a whole string of mishaps and Obviously, the government needs to get to the bottom of the reason why, but it certainly would be enormously beneficial for Taiwan to sort of train with, um, you know, US forces un- unhindered. I think more of the fact that the deal... I think more of the um, controversy... Controversy is a stupid word to use, but more yep. of the big news about this incident was the yep. fact that somebody died. Hmm. I think if, yes. that, if that errant missile had just simply flown into the water, yes. 40 nautical miles into the middle of nowhere, yes. landed in the middle of nowhere, though it would have been yes. a whoops moment rather than yes. an oh dear moment. Yes. Hmm. But it also came when China had just shut down all communications. Um, well, they had to start them again because they noticed that one, didn't they? Yes. <laughs> that, was a, that was a way of saying hello. Just a, just a, <laughs> just a polite hello. If you won't answer our phone, you know. Yes. Got to find another way. Yes. Well, uh, let's actually take that point a little bit more seriously. Uh, I mean, when you look at international media, the headline is Taiwan launches missile accidentally towards China. Um, <laughs> that's the angle that they're taking. I mean, will this have any impact on cross-strait relations? Um, I personally suspect it won't. Um, I think that China had already shut down the government-to-government mechanism, and according to the Taiwan Affairs Office website, it had already shut down the Straits Exchange Foundation website. So when the head of the Taiwan Affairs Office, Zheng Zijun, he demanded an explanation from Taiwan, it wasn't really clear how Taiwan was going to send it over. <laughs> Nevertheless, the government insists it's done everything, and it, tri- and it communicated with China through the Straits Exchange Foundation, and that's it, it's done everything. Mm, have they closed their line chat group as well? <laughs> I 
have no idea. <laughs> that would be a drastic step. Yes, because of course apparently China never fires errant missiles anywhere. Yes. Yeah, oh, it doesn't right. doesn't happen there, does We're it? We're getting no. into dangerous territory yes. right now. You see, my interpretation of Jiang Zijun demanding a full and complete explanation, I think that he's he's very close to Xi Jinping, but I think he's worried that this could get out of control. And mm. that's why he's, even though China had already shut down all communication channels, that was why he's saying you must give a full explanation. Mm. Because he's it... probably got hardliners breathing down his neck. It and land... he just doesn't want any misunderstanding. So I imagine that he was, I, I personally think he was demanding a full explanation just to calm the situation down. It, was la- it landed in Taiwan's territorial waters. It had yep. nothing to do with China. The man was yep. belly aching. Basically, <laughs> um, no. But the missile, as all the international media repeatedly stressed, the missile did go towards China, even if it didn't quite get there. <laughs> so, um, no, I, p- I think that given that why why the missile went towards China in the first place is obviously the exercises are aimed at China, even if they're just exercises, and even if um, there'll never be, a, you know, that war with China is very unlikely. The whole point is that the exercise, the enemy, the military must face is China. The exercises mm. were aimed at China. So it and, does underscore that, yes. And I think that, um, yes, I mean, from a purely idealistic point of view, yes, it landed in Taiwan's waters and it's nothing to do with China. But from a very pragmatic point of view, I just think Jiang Zijun might have been demanding an explanation to help defuse things, even mm. if it didn't sound like that. All right. Uh, well, I guess uh, the main thing to watch now is... Uh, the military policy as presented by the Thai administration. This morning, uh, the Ministry of National Defense actually unveiled a 15-year plan yep. uh, to modernize the Navy. Mm. Uh, so like Jane was saying, there are a lot of money involved in that, a lot of uh, domestic development uh, involved in that. Mm. So I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about this. Uh, but we're going to have to move on because we actually have one more story that we really uh, want to hit real, real quick before we get to the break. Uh, this one is exciting for uh, international relations nerds because uh, it's almost International Tribunal Ruling Day. Ah, oh, such an exciting time for all of us. I'm sure uh, many I'm of our excited. listeners. Uh, well, I, I think I uh, categorize the uh, interest group uh, accurately hey, for all of us. It's in the Hague as well. It's in the Hague. I wonder if they'll be visiting any coffee shops after they release that information. To celebrate, just to celebrate just a celebrate. little bit. Take the Come. edge off of it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay, uh, for all of the uh, normal people with uh, stuff to do in their life who have no idea what we're talking about, let me just uh, explain real quick. Uh, UN-backed tribunal in The Hague uh, will deliver its ruling next Tuesday on a case brought by the Philippines to challenge China's claims to the South China Sea. Uh, many experts uh, that I've been reading uh, very much expect the court to rule in favor of the Philippines, uh, and this could be a major blow to China's claims. Uh, but a bit of an interesting development recently. The Philippines, uh, as of course I'm sure all, all of our listeners know, is under new management. Uh, the guy on top now being Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte. Uh, he's known for being a bit of a tough guy, but uh, interestingly he's been sounding awfully conciliatory towards China recently. He has said, first of all, that if the Philippines wins, he will not flaunt the victory. Basically, he won't just push it in their face and say, hey, we're right, you're wrong, which is kind of what you would expect somebody to do if they win a court case. Uh, And he even offered talks to China, which is an interesting move uh, because, uh, you know, ASEAN member nations have mostly favored group talks rather than unilateral talks where you'd have uh, less leverage. Jane, so before we even get to the Philippine thing, because that's that's really where I want to go, 
Can you just give us your perspective on what is the significance of this ruling? How much would this really change? Well, many people see it as a game changer because um, the rule, the outcome of the ruling won't only determine once and for all whether China's nine-dash line claim is valid in international law, but it's also a test for how much China will respect um, international institutions, international law, and how much it's prepared to adhere to international norms or whether it's just going to go out on a limb and just do what it thinks it should do. Or what it, or what it, you know it believes is its rightful sovereign what it thinks is its rightful sovereign claims. Mm. So from that, it's a test. Yes, it's a test of China's commitments to international norms and standards. Mm. Okay, so let's just do the hypothetical dance right now mm. uh, and imagine mm. that uh, if the Philippines does win, mm. uh, and then you know Duterte, unlike his uh, predecessor. Mm. Doesn't really push it. Does not really pursue this aggressively, and instead, mm. kind of works with China, has talks with them, etc. Uh, how would that change things? Okay. Well, first of all, Keith, I want to say that I, I don't really agree with your assessment because I think actually, um, whatever his motivations, whether he's left leaning or whether he's being smart, I don't know. I think it's quite. I personally think it's quite smart of Duterte to say he wants to talk after the tribunal rules. Um, I recently went to an academic conference on um, international law in the South China Sea, and what one of the experts said was that um, at the end of the day, you've still got to do business with your neighbour, that China is a very important neighbour of the Philippines. And once the court case is over, at the end of the day, you've, you've got to keep talking. Mm-hmm. So I actually think it's really smart <laughs> after China's been completely, presumably, assuming the Philippines wins, China would have been completely, presumably, humiliated. Mm. For someone to say, oh, look, okay, we can talk. Um, I think that's a way of preserving the Philippines' necessary relationship with China, because like it Mm -hmm. or not, they are very close neighbours. Well, I'm not saying that it's not smart, but it certainly is a change in tone from the uh, previous administration. So does does that mean uh, that it will somewhat blunt the outcome? I think it could blunt the outcome between China and the Philippines. Mm-hmm. But um, as, as you've told me, there are a lot of other countries involved in exactly, all this. Exactly, that other countries are going to be watching this ruling. And regardless of how the Philippines decides to treat it, then nations like Vietnam, for example, which can say, stand up and say, hey, well, the ruling says that your claim to our seas is invalid. Mm. So, um, and of course, the US, which is the main opponent of China's nine-dash line claims, um, is very insistent that all nations in the region sort of follow international law. That's its position. Mm. So um, if, the, when, if, if, if the ruling decides that China's nine-dash line claims are invalid, that most of the Spratleys and the Scarborough Shawl are kind of rocks and reefs and not entitled to their own exclusive economic zone, that's going to be a ruling that other countries are going to follow even mm. if the Philippines chooses to ignore it. So it sets a big precedent for other countries as well. Yes, exactly. I would also say that the Philippines blunting it might actually help to diffuse tensions because mm. some analysts say that China could feel like it's in a corner. Mm. And there are a number of measures it might take, but I read that if it um, uh, imposes an ADIZ over the South China Sea or if it decides to do land reclamation in Scarborough Shoal and have an eastern outpost, um, the US has said it will respond. So... China could feel cornered, and I think that if, if um, the Philippines is all victorious, rather than rubbing it in China's nose but saying, yes, we're victorious and we'll talk, I think that could actually defuse tensions. Mm. 
Of course, we haven't mentioned Taiwan through this whole thing so right. far, have we? But this does <laughs> yeah. actually affect Taiwan. It's, it, although the case has been brought by Manila against yeah. Beijing, it does yeah. affect Taiwan for the simple fact that basically Taiwan is not a party to the case. Yes. But Taiwan's claims in the South China Sea are very similar to those of China. Yeah, exactly, And of course, Gavin, China's exactly, claims yeah. to the South China Sea are based on the Republic of China yes. constitution. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, yes. at issue here is Taiping Island, which sits some 16 hundred kilometers south west of Kaohsiung and it's controlled by Taiwan now I hear they have good fruit on that island apparently (laughs) according to President Ma Ying-jeou who keeps taking people there or sending people there when he was president he keeps taking selfies of himself eating food from Taiping Island that's too much information Jane for this time (laughs) of the morning on this typhoon day Gavin's feeling grumpy anyway but of course Taiping Island is considered a Island, not a simply a land, not simply a reef. It's an island, and it can sustain human habitation. Hence the fruit jokes there. Of course, if the Hague rules on the Philippines side, this could put into question Taiping Island actually being a landmass, because of course Taiping Island, although Taiwan wasn't invited to the court case, the situation of Taiping Island was brought up in testimony during the hearings in the Hague, of mm. course. Which, of course, that'll open up another Pandora's box of if and what and when and how, mm. if that does happen. But, of course, we shall wait till next Tuesday, won't we? All right. Uh, so, we're all waiting with bated breath then for next Tuesday. Uh, exciting times ahead. Uh, but the bookmakers are on that one as well, probably. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good week for bookmakers. Yep. Well, that is it for the uh, first half of the show. When we return... Uh, who's got the numbers? We have got the numbers. We'll be putting our finance hats on and uh, crunching our way through the recent, somewhat grim economic news in Taiwan. Mm. Then, the legislative yuan uh, just passed laws that sponsors say will rein in Taiwan's long-distance fishing industry. We get the response to those laws from conservation activist group Greenpeace. All that and more when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps and Jane Rickards. Jumping back in now, uh, we're going to set this part of the show aside uh, to check in on Taiwan's economy. Not entirely clear what the best adjective to use for it recently. It's definitely something negative, uh, stagnant, flagging, flat, just not great is the bottom line. Uh, And we haven't had a chance to check in for a bit of time, but Taiwan's central bank made a pretty big decision last week, uh, so it's about time that we did so. That decision being uh, the lowering of interest rates by 0.125 percentage points uh, down to 1.375 percentage points. Uh, That 1.375 is levels that are almost as low as what we were seeing way back in 2009, you know, during the global economic crisis. So uh, as promised, those are the numbers uh, right there for you. Uh, You ask for numbers, we give you numbers. Uh, The central bank is, of course, hoping this move will encourage lending, uh, speed up growth into Taiwan. Uh, And there, uh, I just said basically uh, everything that I know about these numbers. But lucky for us, uh, we've got someone on the line who knows at least a thing or two more than me. Uh, I think that's pretty safe to say. That person is Deborah Mao. Uh, She is the Taipei Bureau Chief of Bloomberg News. uh, And she's been writing about the central bank's policy. Uh, Deborah, thanks for joining us this evening. Hi, Keith. Thanks for having me. So let's just start out with uh, the very basic question. What was behind this decision to uh, drop interest rates? 
Well, um, so the big picture is that Taiwan's economy is uh, in a period of contraction or recession, as you, as some people would like to call it. Um, and we've posted three quarters of negative growth for GDP, and so this is part of the central bank's efforts to kind of spur demand for borrowing and, and getting people investing again in the economy. Right. And you wrote uh, right after the decision was made that uh, it involves other things as well, too, though. You mentioned that Brexit may have been a factor. Yeah. So um, Brexit created all this uncertainty. Of course, nobody knows how that's going to play out um, over the next few years, how that process of Britain exiting the EU is actually going to work. But what it's creating is all this uncertainty and casting sort of an overhang over the global economy. So Taiwan is an island, as we know, um, very export dependent. Um, you know, we, we want um, countries around the world to be buying Taiwanese goods. Um, but because of Brexit, because of all this global uncertainty over trade, over economic growth, um, it's, it's not demand that we can count on at, at this point. And so the central bank um, probably trying to uh, take some precautionary um, moves as well ahead of any uh, any major slowdown. Mm. All right. So uh, in just a second, we're going to get into some of the things that the government is trying to do to shore up the economy. But first, uh, let's just go in in uh, even a little bit more detail. What are really the things uh, that are weighing down the economy uh, currently? You've already uh, put your finger on those slow exports. Uh, people talk about, you know, there's uh, slackening demand for uh, iPhones, computer parts, all of that. Uh, that's taking a bit of an impact. Uh, is, there, is there anything else going on that's also making it tough for uh, Taiwan to really pick up some steam? Well, um, as most people know, Taiwan's major uh, export is electronics. Um, and so, as you mentioned, the slowing iPhone sales and um, other electronics, that's not such good news for um, Taiwanese exporters. Um, the other main thing is that Taiwan exports a lot of petrochemical products. And so, recently, low oil prices has sort of put a damper on the prices that, um, that these uh, companies are able to charge for their plastics and other oil-based products that they export to places around the world. Um, so that's been uh, really hard for exporters. The other thing, of course, is um, the currency. Um, Taiwan, Taiwan's dollar, the new Taiwan dollar, has sort of outperformed other currencies around the region, um, which makes its exports less competitive. Um, and that's mainly because of all the, these funds that are flowing in from other places where interest rates are really low. Hmm. Um, and so that's something that the central bank really has had to manage as well. And it does take a more active role than other central banks um, in hmm. sort of keeping the currency at a low level or at a lower level, I guess. Hmm. Um, so those are some of the things weighing on exports. The other main part of economic growth in Taiwan is internal demand. And that's everything from, like, going to the movies, eating out, and, like, you know, like, personal private consumption to also um, investment by private companies. And that part has not really seen a very significant pickup. And that's another part of what um, the central bank actually was very concerned about recently. Mm. Well, as Gavin pointed out to me before we turned on these mics, uh, maybe with the typhoon in town and people taking the day off, maybe they'll have their chance to do their part to uh, shore up that consumer spending. A lot of KTV trips, I imagine. Now, let's take a look at the government response uh, for just a second. So, of course, governments kind of have two big overarching policy tools. They have uh, the monetary response, which is, of course, what the central bank can do, messing with interest rates, all that. Uh, Then there's the fiscal response. That's how much the government is spending. 
Uh, and the central bank has basically been saying right now uh, this that monetary policy is doing all the work of trying to shore up the economy. And what we're seeing is uh, not just, you know, a, a, a leveling of government spending, but in some cases, kind of uh, plans to decline in, in, in a couple of ways. Uh, so uh, lay out that argument for us. Um, well, it's really an argument that uh, has been raging in the U.S. for a while. Um, and pretty much um, it comes down to two economists who have been proposing different ideas, um, mainly Larry Summers and one camp talking about this idea of secular stagnation, and then, um, you know, people who are more in favor of monetary policy, um, and uh, the likes of Janet Yellen, who's the Fed, uh, Fed governor there. Um, basically, it, it comes down to whether um, people think the economy can be fixed by interest rates, or if they really believe that government should be leading um, demand creation and making massive investments in domestic economies like local infrastructure, for example, and, you know, really building out your airports and your rail lines and, and creating jobs in demand that way. Mm. Um, so Taiwan, uh, at least from the central bank's point of view, um, is not investing enough from the government's perspective, from the fiscal side. Uh, and relying too much on the central bank's ability to manage the economy via interest rates and, you know, um, intervening in the currency market and things like that. So they were uh, pretty much at this last decision, they put out a call to everybody saying that, you know, if there are cuts in spending, for example, that are discussed by um, Premier Lin Chen's cabinet right now, you know, they're trying to keep keep. Uh, a tight watch over their purse strings. They're trying to um, maybe fix the whole civil servant pension system, which a lot of people feel is way too generous and, you know, drawing down on the government's, um, uh, the government's coffers too much. And so they, having this focus on, like, fiscal um, discipline can be a good thing, but from the central bank's perspective, that is not the right thing to be doing at the, this moment in time, which is, you know, three 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 straight quarters of negative GDP growth, and this should be a time of actually spending more money to, to spur demand. Hmm. So, yeah, some very difficult uh, decisions that are facing Taiwan's government. It does seem, though, like the cabinet, uh, as you said, there is in much more of a uh, conservative, sort of spend-thrifty kind of move, uh, hmm. mood, uh, given that uh, you know, uh, uh, we we saw a lot of projections this week coming out that were showing uh, kind of decreasing their uh, prospect for GDP growth this year. They're expecting lower economic growth than they had previously. What's your perspective on uh, all that? If the government continues uh, on its trajectory, uh, should we expect rockier times ahead? Well, the government actually is still in the process of um, putting together next year's budget. And um, they maintain that, you know, it's not a done deal yet and that if there are great investment projects, infrastructure investments and the like, they will consider spending that money. So we'll see how the budget actually turns out. Um, But if they do cut down spending, then I think the central bank is still going to have to pick up more of the slack. I think what everybody does not want to see is negative growth for the year Um, I think most people, including Academia Seneca, they're predicting um, within 1% of growth. The official forecast right now is 1.06% growth for the entire year. Mm. 
Uh, and uh, last question I want to ask, I mean, are, all of these challenges that Taiwan is facing, are they, should we consider this really a, a, a long-term state uh, that we should expect, or, or, or is this more dependent on, uh, you know, recent global concerns and recent, you know, the slowdown in China, et cetera, or, or is this kind of a new normal? Um, that is a very good question that I think even leading economists still cannot agree on at this point. So um, I think that the argument for the long-term um, new normal that you're talking about is gaining ground, um, and particularly at the last Fed meeting in the U.S., Janet Yellen actually did make some concessions that this could be a period of long-term um uh, flat growth, let's say. Um, so, so yeah, if it's the case in the U.S., it may be the case in Taiwan. I think we'll have to wait and see. Mm, all right. Well, so we are keeping our economic predictions uh, in line with the dourness of the weather outside. Very appropriate. We appreciate that, of course. Uh, we have been speaking to Deborah Mao. She, once again, is the Taipei Bureau Chief of Bloomberg News. Uh, Deborah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Keith. Have a good one. All right, and moving right along to our final story uh, for the broadcast portion of the show. Big news this week for Taiwan's fishing industry. Uh, laws were passed uh, that is really going to impact how uh, the industry conducts its business. At least that's what lawmakers are telling us. Uh, these laws concern the act governing distant waters fisheries, uh, the Fisheries Act, uh, and the ordinance to govern investment in the operation of foreign flag fishing vessels. Basically, the bottom line here is uh, the penalties for breaking uh, the rules concerning how these fishermen do their jobs, they are being increased dramatically. Let's start, though, uh, before we even get to what these laws are doing, uh, let's start to why these laws are being passed in the first place. Uh, Gavin, the industry has gotten a bit of a bad rap uh, beginning last October, more or less. Yes, this was Taiwan's Far Seas fleet, which operates, of course, in the Far Seas. Makes sense. From, makes sense, doesn't it, eh? Well, they got into trouble because they got boarded by Greenpeace. A vessel got boarded by Greenpeace and they found shark fins on the vessel. Of course, shark finning is very, very illegal and goes against all international fishery laws. Now, the European Commission got wind of this from Greenpeace and they were a bit uppity about it and said, hey, look, we think Taipei should rein in its far seas fleet vessels and also deal with its rather lax deep seas fishing laws. Mm. Well, it took Taiwan rather a long time to do this because the European Commission says, right, you have don't have very long, otherwise we're going to give you a red card. Now, a red card would have entailed sanctions from mm -hmm. the European Commission and the European Union against Taiwan's basic fishing industry. So basically, Taiwan could not export fish, fisheries products or anything to do with marine anything whatsoever to European countries. Mm. Now, the government last week, this week rather, decided to set out new legislation and enlist 19 major violations of laws that can now be punished. And these laws do include both boat operators, fishing boat operators, and fishermen, individual fishermen, having their fishing licenses revoked. And the key here is uh, the size of the penalties that they're talking about now, because before one of the main criticisms was uh, the penalties just weren't big enough and you would make more money by selling the stuff. You know, the, the selling shark fins was so lucrative that would more than make up for uh, any penalties you would get if you were caught. Yes, that's what the Euro European Commission said. They said, look, Taiwan should have the same laws for its far seas fleet as does South Korea and Japan. Mm. Basically means that if you're caught illegally fishing or caught breaking international fisheries rules, you are fined millions and millions of dollars and have your boat taken away and your license revoked. 
All right. Now, uh, that gives us a sense of what this law looks like. Uh, Now I want to turn things over to a group that has been really following uh, the trajectory of all this for quite a long time. Uh, I'm speaking, of course, about Greenpeace. Uh, Greenpeace Taiwan was uh, very—they had a big hand uh, in getting the ball rolling on this originally. It was uh, one of their— uh, inspection teams that actually went onto the boat that found the shark finning that uh, got the yellow card process started in the first place. They've been following it since then. Uh, so we are lucky to have today on the line Greenpeace Oceans campaigner uh, Lisa Tsai to break this all down for us and give us their take on the steps that the government has taken so far. Uh, so Lisa Tsai, good evening to you. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Uh, let's just start by, even before we get to the law, uh, let's help our listeners understand what this problem really means uh, for the ocean and for the environment. Uh, basically, what is the scope of this problem? Mm-hmm. So I think before we get into the problem, I think it will be good for everyone to understand actually Taiwan's distant water fishery is pretty strong. And our fleet, like take our tuna fishing fleet as an example, we have probably the biggest tuna long liner in the whole wide world. And that's also why a lot of countries, they are paying attention to the behavior of Taiwanese fishing vessels. But the problem is for the past couple of years, many RFMOs and also countries have reported some of the IUU fishing and also the violation of certain regulation of Taiwanese fishing vessels. That's why the international community started to pay close attention to how Taiwanese government can manage their own fishing fleets. And that's also why it leads to the issue of the yellow card from EU, because what they see is the Taiwanese government has been failing to manage their fishing vessels, and a lot of IU activity is still happening all over the world. And it's many of them is actually the Taiwanese fishing vessels. Right. And uh, just to clarify real quick for our listeners, uh, you just use the term IUU fishing. Uh, what does that mean exactly? Illegal, unregulated and report unreported fishing activities. All right. And uh, just getting back to the harm here, though, you know, what kind of harm this is causing? Uh, I really want to understand. I mean, is this the sort of thing uh, that drives species to extinction? Like what kinds of harm are we looking at? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we know like. I think everyone knows like the marine resources is already decreasing right now. So a lot of RFMOs in country, they are trying to manage the marine resources. But the way they are managing right now is to know how many fish we are taking out of the ocean every year. So they will know like certain species, what's their population, if they are incre- increasing or they are decreasing. And if they are decreasing, they should find a way to set the quota, that, like the catch limit for each country. But the problem with IUU fishing is if the IUU fishing is happening, there's no way you can track how many fish is taken from the ocean. And that could lead to, if we don't know the population of the oceans, then we'll just keep on taking and probably we will end up in a, in a certain turning point where it's no, no way back to restore restore the population. So that's why a lot of countries, including EU, state now they are focusing on how to deter IUU fishing so they can try to manage the marine resources better. 
All right, so that is all by way of giving a sense of uh, the stakes here. Uh, Let's get back to the laws that were passed this week. Of course, you have been following this whole process very closely. I'm sure that uh, when those laws were passed earlier this week, uh, you were also watching that very closely. What stands out most to you here? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because we have been following the Distant Water Fishery Act since it was the draft, and based on the one just passed this Tuesday, Greenpeace think that the act is on the right track, but we also want to highlight that this is just the beginning to have a better management of our sustainable, uh, of our distant water fishery. Because we know like based on previous experiences, we tend to have a really good legislation, but the problem is how can we enforce that? And this legislation is going to be a good framework, but Taiwanese government will need to put much more resources into that to ensure we can enforce this law and to deter IUU as well as to have a sustainable future for our distant water fishery. Okay, so uh, let's flesh out what you're saying there just a little bit. Uh, What does more resources and more enforcement uh, actually look like? And, you know, in practical terms, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. It will include onboard inspection, as probably some of people already know. We have observers on some of some of our fishing vessels, but it's not one hundred percent covered yet. So we need to improve that part. And the other thing is to have people at other foreign ports to inspect our fishing vessels, because based on uh, OECD's data, actually. Mo- a lot of the Taiwanese fishing vessel, they offload their fish catch at foreign ports, which means we need to have people at those foreign ports to inspect those offloads to make sure there's no IU fishing activities and to make sure the catch they have is well recorded. And all of these will require a lot of resources. Right. And, you know, that, that all sounds like a pretty tall order uh, honestly, uh, of course, Greenpeace, uh, your group released a report in April. Uh, that's months and months after the original yellow card was released that once again uh, was reporting huge problems in uh, Taiwan's fishing industry. Uh, you know, in addition to some of these uh, fishing violations that uh, we've already discussed, you, you know, you also found labor abuses. Uh, you also found uh, many of the crew being uh, worked too hard, uh, very harsh conditions, uh, even, you know, physical abuse that was occurring. Uh, so... Even despite all the attention that has been paid to this, uh, you know, before April, that stuff was persisting, according to your report. So, I mean, it's it does seem like it's really going to take uh, quite a big response uh, to bring all these issues under control. We are trying to stay positive, I would say. But we also know there's going to be a lot of challenges. But just like you said, it's not just the IU fishing problems, but also the labor issues. So that's also why... After this legislation, we what we suggested is the Taiwanese government need to establish a cross-department collaboration, which will involve not just the fish fishery agency, but also the labor labor department who knows how to manage foreign labors better and to solve those possible labor abuses happening at the sea, as what Greenpeace has mentioned in our previous report. 
All right. And I, I want to look at uh, the other side of this uh, just for a second. Uh, because, of course, uh, since that yellow card was delivered, Taiwan's fishing fleet has been very defensive uh, and have been making a number of arguments as to why they believe uh, this sort of scrutiny and this sort of uh, increase in fines is treating them unfairly. I mean, their argument basically boils down to uh, that the EU is biased uh, in the way that they are carrying out fishing regulations uh, and that the Taiwan government should be doing more to protect them. I mean, they're making the argument that the EU is uh, focusing too much on uh, regulating fish that are popular in Asia, fished in Asian waters, uh, and they're less regulating fish that are, you know, popular in the EU. So this kind of, this double standard is really impacting uh, the Taiwan fishing industry, and they're saying that that is all unfair. Uh, What do you say to those concerns, those criticisms? I will say if you think actually Taiwan is one of the top six tuna fishing power globally and EU is not one of them. And also, according to the FAO's data, Taiwan also have the highest number of tuna longliners globally. But however, we have seen that Taiwanese fishing vessel has been repeatedly reported and observed by other countries and RFMOs with IUU fishing and infringement. That's why now the pressure is on Taiwanese government to try to manage our fishing vessels. So I will I will say if we could, based on our current just passed legislation, if we can actually enforce that, then we will have a better say about what other countries is doing. Because now if Taiwanese fishing vessel is not doing a good job, Taiwanese governments don't have that power or that leverage to ask other countries to do to do a better job than us. So it sounds like basically what you're saying, there is uh, the best way for Taiwan uh, to get more say in how these rules are set is, is to clean up its own act. Mm-hmm. And we also think Taiwanese government need to invest more resources into deter IU fishing as well as to set a clear map for for the distant water fishery to to develop to have a sustainable development because that's what is lacking actually right now. All right, well, folks who want to learn more about the work that Greenpeace is doing in Taiwan, uh, you can check out their Facebook page. To find that, just search at greenpeace.org.tw. That will get you right there. Uh, once again, we have been speaking to uh, Greenpeace Oceans campaigner Lisa Tsai. Lisa, uh, thank you once again for joining us. No problem. It's my pleasure. All right. So that uh, rounds out that segment. We move now to our bonus podcast story for today. Uh, And, you know, we just kind of got out of a whole environmental issue. Uh, Taiwan looking abroad to its uh, international environmental footprint. Now we're going to look at a domestic story with one politician uh, who some of his supporters are saying he's not quite up to snuff on the environmental front. Yeah, this is the GG Township Mayor, Chen Ji Hong. Now, he was elected in 2014 on a ticket. Now, the ticket he was elected on belonged to the Tree Party. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know we had a Tree Party. Apparently we do. That is the name of the party. Yep. yep. Apparently he's, the, he's Taiwan's youngest township mayor. Mm-hmm. Now, this week... He got a bit angry. He said he would no longer refer to himself as a conservationist. And he was distancing himself from the movement of loving wildlife and all things green because of ideological differences. 
Mm-hmm. So basically, he came into power saying, "I love trees. I love trees. We love each other." And then he went, "I don't quite love them that much <laughs> because apparently, loving trees is baggage to his governance." Mm. Now, however, in, oh. I know, I know, I know. You got he angry just, with the trees. He didn't hug the trees hard enough. He's going to take up cricket. <laughs> just to make sure that more trees are cut down to make bats. But anyway, he made these remarks in response to being disavowed by the tree party two months ago, mm. following a series of escalating disputes that began last year over the conduct of his office in the pruning of weeping fig trees in Nanto County. Ah, so, so, so they broke up over a pruning issue. Over a pruning issue. And apparently the tree party people said, you're pruning those trees wrong. To which he said, no, I'm not. Prove it. They said, well, we think you're pruning them wrong because the township's equipment lacks the necessary height to the trim the tree's topmost layers, resulting, and I quote this, in public gardeners sometimes overcompensating by removing an excessive number of low-hanging <laughs> branches. So when you have a party called the Tree Party, this is what a political controversy looks like. You see, David Cameron should have had problems with trees, <laughs> not with the European Union. It would have saved him a lot of trouble, wouldn't it, really? This is a much more benign political controversy. Nobody would have taken it seriously except the Daily Mail. Was this guy going to branch out? Ah! Years, or, you know, any new no, he, he can't because he, he can't branch out, Jane, because his roots are there. Ah! Mm. <laughs> uh, okay, so, right. I think they're about to have a ref- referendum on whether or not they should leaf. I got the worst response of the three. Darn hey, it. it's because you should you should have made like a tree. <laughs> oh, that's that's Leafed. how you that's how you you can't just do the same joke I just made. <laughs> well, if he leaves ideas in the tree party, might blossom. <sighs> now maybe he's sort of weighing down. That's true. <laughs> well, uh, in so any of my puns are the most dumbest. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. You 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 open strong. You open strong. Very respectable. <laughs> Jane will have the last word on that one. We're going to give it to Jane. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, no. Feel free to edit my dumb <laughs> Nope, it is all going in. I guarantee that is all going in. Oh, yeah. Lordy Lou. Okay, well, uh, we are going to have to uh, leaf it there. I'm yeah. just going to keep making that joke again and again until it's funny. That is it for the show today. Please do join us again next time. Taiwan This Week broadcasts every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100. Uh, I promise there will be fewer dumb puns next week. I don't hold to all my promises, but we'll, we'll say that for now. Anyway, you can find uh, extended versions of this show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes. I've also started posting to the ICRT blog. If you do listen to the show through the ICRT blog, please do leave a comment while you're there. We would love to hear what you have to say about the topics we discussed today. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Yeah, I think it's time for some fish and chips. I think it probably is. Uh, And by phone, uh, we have Jane Rickards. Jane, thanks uh, for you being here as well. Thank you, Keith. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. That you don't know what you've got till it's gone. The thief's paradise, put up a parking lot. Need last night. Oh, I fancy some fish and chips now. <laughs> no, shark fin soup, I think. I made a joke about fart, shark skin, shark's fin. Shark's fin. Fart skin soup? I was at a wedding recently.
Yeah, last year I was at a wedding and we're sitting down for the big meal and then they serve they serve, they serve shark's fin soup. Yeah, so it comes to the table, everyone takes their bowl, the person next to me looks at me and goes, I think this is shark's fin soup. To which I look at him and go, yeah, I need a bigger bowl. <laughs> 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 <laughs>